Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, we'll find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rachel. So uh, if you are just joining us or have been out um, for the last three weeks, uh, we have been opening up this same passage of Scripture um, as a little kind of Jan term, January series uh, on our, our mission, our hope, our vision here at Midtown 12 South. And um, today's the final piece of that. Uh, and next week, we'll begin our spring journey through the book of Luke, which I'm very excited about. But um, I hope what you've heard in these last couple of weeks, and, and including today, I hope what you will hear is not only what is Midtown's vision, and what do we want to be about, and what's our DNA, and what does Jesus say about the church here. I, I hope what you've heard is not what does Midtown want to do in this city, but um, what is Jesus' vision for his people that if you, if you don't call this church home or if you're visiting today and, and you don't want to find a seat anymore, I don't blame you. I wouldn't go to church here. I'm just telling you. And like, I, I get it. But if, if, if that question is not what we're talking about, we're talking about not what does Midtown 12 South want to do. What does Jesus say about his church? That regardless of where you would call church home, this is Jesus' vision for his church. And so we've looked at several different aspects of that, several different truths and tenets from this passage about Jesus saying and guaranteeing, I will build my church on these things, and this is what I'm giving to the church to put their mind to and to put their effort to and to put their time to, and here's, here are the promises, and here's the, here's the, the kinds of ethos that the church, um, my church, needs to have. And so today, we begin this final um, 
walk through this passage by asking this one final question. And hopefully, this final question will snowball uh, this morning and we'll, we'll get somewhere with this. But here, we're going to begin our time in this passage with the question that Jesus asks at the beginning of this passage. Can you throw up that li- the, the first slide of Scripture? This is the opening line of this section of Scripture. Verse 13, Jesus said, Now when Jesus came into the district of the Caesarea of Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's Jesus speaking in the third person a little bit. Who do people say that I am? What Jesus does in this opening line of this passage is he shows a little curiosity. Now, you need to know Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. So when Jesus asks a question, he doesn't need the answer. He's asking the question so that the one who's listening will hear the answer. He's asking the question so that the listener will ask, why is Jesus asking me that question? Because he knows. Who do people say that I am? Well, this curiosity from Jesus begins to challenge the disciples' view of how Jesus views the people, of how Jesus views the world. So here's, here's a different way to ask you the same question that Jesus just asked his disciples. Does Jesus care about people that you don't know knowing who he is? Does Jesus care about people that you don't know knowing who he is? Which just just the, the, the premise of the question would require that I stop only caring about me and my friends for a little while. Like I've got to ask a different question to answer Jesus' question. Does Jesus care about people that I don't know knowing who he is? Do you know how many minutes a day I spend about I spend thinking about people that I don't know? Less than zero. Like sub-zero amount of time thinking about people that I don't currently know. And yet Jesus here is asking, what do people out there, people who you don't know, what do they say about me? Do they know who I am? Does Jesus care about people that you don't know knowing who he is? Is that a desire of Jesus's? In the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah, Jonah is this short little four-chapter minor prophet. It's It's a beautiful, profound story. We studied it several years ago. It's an amazing story. But Jonah is this reluctant prophet who's called to go to Nineveh, and he refuses. He sets sail in the opposite direction for Tarshish and turns the boat around, throws it in the belly of a whale or fish, something, who knows. And then he's on dry ground. He goes to Nineveh. Finally, he gets to Nineveh, and he begins to call the Ninevites, his enemies, to repentance. Repent that the Lord might show you mercy. And he proclaims this message of redemption and and repent that the Lord might show you mercy. And then at the very end of the book, Jonah is pissed. Jonah is angry. Jonah goes to the Lord and he's not happy about the fact that the Lord just had him proclaim a message of mercy to his enemies because he knows the Lord is going to show these people mercy and he's sick of that. So the book of Jonah closes with this question from the Lord to Jonah. It closes with a question. The Lord comes back to Jonah and he's going, hey, I get it that you're angry. Um, Let me ask you something, Jonah. The Lord, I'm the Lord. Should I not care about that great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? It's a great ending to a story. But he says, hey, Jonah, there's six digits worth of people over there, 120,000s of people, more than that, he says, and they're all confused. They don't know the right hand from their left. They don't know which way is up. They don't know me. They don't know right from wrong. They don't get it. They're lost. They're wandering around. They're confused. They're hurting. They're sick and sore. Should I not care about them and also much cattle? 
Should I not care about those people? And I know that you think you're in the Bible Belt here. I know that you think there's a church on every corner, but most of those churches, according to statistics, have no one going to them. But the Bible Belt outgrew the genes that it was on, and so now, sorry, that metaphor probably falls apart, but the Bible Belt isn't being worn anymore around here. And that, that this city is no longer a, a, a overwhelmingly churched city anymore. And so it's as if if we were Jonah and the Lord was coming to us to speak to us today, he would say something like this. Should I not pity, should I not care about Nashville? Where there's more than a million people who don't know their right hand from their left. And also much songwriting. <laughs> should, there, there's, there's more than a million people out there who don't know their right hand from their left. They're lost they're wandering around, they're confused, they don't know me. Should I not care about them? Does Jesus care about people that you don't know, knowing who he is? In Matthew chapter 9, just a few verses, or just a few chapters before our Matthew 16 passage that we're studying, Jesus comes to a large crowd, and it, he's overlooking the crowd, and we're, we're, we're given a little bit of insight about what is going on in the mind of Jesus before he starts speaking to this crowd and it says he's looking over the crowds in front of him, and Matthew tells us that Jesus is staring out at the masses of people, and it says that he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless. He's looking over this crowd. He sees them being torn and ripped apart, confused. And then he, make, he makes this comparison. It's, it's as if they are sheep without a shepherd. Do you know how vulnerable? Do you know how weak do you know how defenseless sheep without shepherds are? The most vulnerable of all animals. Sheep don't know how to defend themselves. They don't know where to find their own food. They are literally completely, their life is over if they don't have a shepherd guiding them. Do you know that no time in the history of animals has there ever been a wild pack of sheep found together? It's a true story. That sheep, when they're out on their own, don't find each other. Everybody else packs together with their people. Sheep remain in isolation. They don't even know how to find their friends. And so here, here's, here's what the, the comparison Jesus is making. These people, they're confused, they're sick, they're sore, they're starving, they're lost. And, and here's Jesus, when Jesus sees that, he's looking over this crowd of people, he doesn't feel angry at them. He's not blaming them for that. He's not saying, if you would get your act together, you would find a shepherd on your own. When Jesus sees a crowd of people and he says, I see this, he feels something towards them and it's not anger, it's not disappointment. He feels compassion for them. In fact, that word compassion, our English translation of compassion of the original Greek in Matthew, it's, 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 it's close. It just doesn't quite go quite so far. That word compassion gets at this place that is like deep in the bowels like the deepest place of emotions, the deepest place of feeling for somebody. Jesus is literally, he's saying here, sick to his stomach, like curled over, and I feel, feel queasy, like I'm looking and I'm in so much pain for them. I feel deep down something looking at their state. And what's their state? They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're weak and wounded, sick and sore. And Jesus feels compassion for them. What does that say about who Jesus is and what he cares about? What does that say about the heart of Jesus? Does Jesus care about people that you don't know knowing who he is? I believe the biblical answer is yes. 
So if that's what he cares about, how does he foresee, what is Jesus' master plan in, I care about these people that you don't know, I care about them knowing who I am, how does he want to do that? How does he want, what are the means by which he sets forth the people that he cares about out there that you don't know, knowing him? Well, this is kind of the mastery of this section of scripture. Jesus is a master teacher, he's a rabbi, and he makes this very kind of mystical, mysterious connection with his two opening questions. They're, they're very interrelated. He says in, in the opening line, who do people out there say that I am? And the, and the disciples give a bunch of wrong answers. Those people don't know who you are. And then Jesus says, okay, great. Who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the right answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the connection is happening like this. Hey, all those people that don't know, I know that you know so that you can let them know. You do know who I am. You do know that I'm the Christ. You do know that I'm the Messiah. And my plan for those people that don't know who I am is you. It's the church. It's the ecclesia. It's the gathering of Jesus' people. He's saying to them, you need to know who I am so that you can show them who I am. The primary way the Father reveals who he is is through his people. It's not the only way, but it's the primary way. The same thing is true in our reference to Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus is looking over the crowd and he feels compassion for them for they're like sheep without a shepherd. The very next line, the very next line, Jesus says, he's speaking to his disciples and he says, you need to pray that there would be laborers to come and labor alongside because the harvest is plenty but the laborers are few. Like the harvest is, is white with harvest. It's ripe. It's ready to go, but the laborers are few. He's saying, I feel compassion for these people who are like sheep without a shepherd, and I'm praying, I'm telling you to pray for people to go. I need you to go do that. That's my, my, that's my master plan, is that the church would be the people who lets people that you don't know know who he is. Same is true in Jonah chapter 4. When, G, when, when the Lord says to Jonah, these Ninevites, should I not care about 120,000 of those people and also much cattle? Hey, Jonah, side note, I just sent you there so that you could let them know how much I care about them. This isn't some like, the Lord doesn't ask Jonah, like, should I not care about them? And I wonder how I would let them know how, how I care about them, Jonah. No, Jonah, you just got done letting them know how much I care about them. I'm letting you know, Jonah, what my heart is, and I'm also telling you how I want my heart to be expressed. It's through you even though you're pissed and angry right now. I want you to let them know that I care about them. All throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, how does the compassionate, passionate Jesus want to reveal his Father to the world? His church. You. Me. And so the ways that that kind of takes shape here at 12 South, the way that that has formed our mission and our vision here, we are... As Josh said a few minutes ago, we are one church with multiple congregations. We are seeking to be a movement of gospel transformation in this city through multiple congregations. And here's, here's how that takes shape. There's currently four Midtown locations in this city. We're not trying to build one mega, one massive where there's 15,000 people all in the same place. We're trying to get bigger by getting smaller that we would actually believe that there's people who don't know about these cool hip red doors and they're never gonna come in this building and they live in another part of town and they're never coming here. They're never gonna know you and so guess what we're gonna do? We're gonna go to them. We're gonna send people to them 
And they're not hipster enough to walk up and down this street. They don't care about frothy, okay? And they, they're not coming here or to any of our locations. And so instead of waiting for them to get on the Instagram and figure out how to get in these, in these doors and find a freaking seat, no, we're going to go to them. And who's going to do that? You are. 12 South is going to do that. That tonight, you've heard about this if you've been around, tonight there is a party. Tonight there's a party for the launch event of our fifth congregation. Matt Avery, who's been an assistant pastor here for the last year and a half, we're sending him out. You, and, and tonight is a party to celebrate that sending out. They're going to start gathering as, as, a, as a launch team, and, and they're going to start meeting and gathering to plant a church in a different neighborhood in the city where a bunch of people would never be in here. Does Jesus care about a bunch of people that you don't know, knowing who he is? Yes. And how's he going to do that? You. And that can look a lot of different ways at Midtown. That if Jesus cares about people knowing who he is, and his plan for that is his people, the church, answering that call at Midtown 12 South, where you currently are, can look a couple different ways. One of the ways that we just said is it can look like you leaving. It can look like 100 of you, 200 of you, 300 of you. That's as far as I'm going to go. It can, <laughs> it, can look like, it can look like several hundred of you going with Matt Avery. And if you are interested at all, you should come to the party tonight because it's going to be fun. It's going to be wine. Because that's what Jesus did at his parties. But... <laughs> And, and, and you can hear all about it, and you need to be asking that question. Here's another way, though, because if 300 of y'all leave, guess what we're going to need here? Some of you guys to stay. Some of you guys to stay and step up here, that you've been sitting on the bench, and maybe you've been sitting on the bench, and the Lord's calling you off the bench so you can go. Maybe the Lord's calling you off the bench so you can stay. And here's how that might look. Guess what we need? Matt Ackerman will tell you about this. We need a bunch of people every Sunday, volunteers, to get off of their bench called a bed every Sunday morning and come here and serve, to serve our kids, to play in the band, to greet people, to make coffee. We need about 40 to 50 people every Sunday. Might be time for you to do that. We also, we're maxed out on small groups. And we're going to lose a bunch of small group leaders to Matt's plant. Good riddance, right? No, I'm kidding. We're going to lose a bunch of leaders to Matt Avery's plant. Guess what we're going to need? Small group leaders. And so here's, here's the question. The Lord may be asking you in this plan of his, does he care about people that you don't know knowing who he is? Yes. And just like Josh Bilker said, asking the question, Lord, what would you have me do here? Guess what Josh did? He just started greeting people. He got on the greeting team. Guess what he is now? He's an elder. That could be you one day. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Start as a greeter, work your way up the ladder here. You could be, a, you could be an elder here. But the, it just begins with this question. Lord, what would you have me do here? Maybe what it looks like for you, and I mean this in all seriousness, maybe the only thing it looks like for you is joining a small group. Like just get in one. That's getting off the bench and saying, I'm going to give up a Tuesday night and go be with people and study God's word together and be in relationships here and not be in isolation anymore like, like Ashley was saying. Some of you need to get off the bench and leave. Some of you need to get off the bench and stay. And so would you consider going on that journey of showing people who you don't know who Jesus is? And so if Jesus cares about people that you don't know knowing who he is, and that's how he wants to do it is through you, what is it exactly that he wants them to know about him? Who is he? If he cares about people knowing who he is, and the way he's going to do that is through us. How, how or what is the core of that message? What does he want them to know about him? Let's go back to the passage. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that, from that time, 
Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Bold. Jesus here, okay, now follow, follow this progression here. This is so important for us. Who do they say that I am? They don't know who I am. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus goes, ding, 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 ding. You're right, you know who I am. The very first thing that Jesus the Messiah wants his disciples to know about him as a Messiah is that I'm the kind of Messiah that suffers. I must go to Jerusalem to suffer and be killed. In fact, he's so adamant about this that from this point forward, to, from, from Matthew 16 until his crucifixion, he will bring up this idea of the Messiah that must go suffer 10 more times. Like, hey, you might have forgotten, I've gotta go suffer. And almost, almost every time he brings it up, this happens. There's a rebuke. No, 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 Jesus. I mean, Peter, Peter is bold. That will never happen to you. That will never happen to you. I'll make sure of it. He tries to make sure of it. In the mind of Jesus, in the heart of the divine, the same Jesus who cares about people that you don't know knowing who he is, here reveals himself to be the Messiah who is willing to suffer for those same people. It's the first thing he wants his disciples to know about him. It's the first thing, you got it right. You called me the Christ. I am the Messiah. Let me tell you a little bit about the Messiah. I'm the kind of Messiah that suffers. And Peter rebukes him. Why would Peter do that? Why is Peter so diametrically opposed to the idea that Jesus would have to suffer and die? Because Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs don't suffer and die in the mind of the Jewish disciples. In fact, our call to worship was from 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul understands this same, this same struggle to try to like, figure out and understand, wait, 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 Jesus the Messiah was the Messiah that came to suffer? That doesn't make any sense. That's why he calls in 1 Corinthians 1 the cross where Jesus suffered and died. He says the cross is foolishness to the world. It's folly. It doesn't make any sense because Messiahs don't suffer. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says that the cross is a stumbling block like if people trip over it, like they, they stumble in trying to understand the cross is a stumbling block to people hearing about Christianity. That word stumbling block is, is the Greek word scandalon, which is where we get scandalous. The cross is not just foolish and absurd, it's scandalous. It's, a, it's offensive to our logic and our reason. People who are messiahs, people who are saviors, their life is easy. They don't suffer. People who come to rescue worlds, they don't suffer. They just destroy everybody, right? They just kill everybody and sit on the throne themselves. It doesn't make any sense. Messiahs don't suffer. That's what Peter is showing us right here. See, crucifixion in the ancient world was, was literally a means by which not only would they, would they put to death the most heinous criminals, crucifixion was also a way you squashed out rebellions and uprisings. That if there's any, any notion of mutiny, any notion of an uprising, we'll just crucify a couple leaders of the movement and then we'll see how willing all their followers are to follow in their footsteps. It literally like squashed the will of people who were trying to change things. Crucifixion destroyed revolutions. It destroyed people underneath Roman rule. 
doesn't make any sense. So when Peter begins to hear about Jesus going to suffer and crucify, be crucified and die, he cannot fathom this. Which is why Fleming Rutledge, again my theological 85-year-old crush, she says in her book on the cross, no one, no one in the imagination of human history had ever conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and the degradation of its own God. Nobody else will give you a religion where the main character in that religion, our God, chose to come and suffer. That doesn't happen. And Christianity not only says, not only is that a part of our story, it's actually the central tenet. It's like what everything is built on. That that's, what, that's the glory of this whole thing. And so Peter here starts off being very, very confused. Messiahs don't suffer. But then if you follow the New Testament, if you read the rest of the New Testament from Matthew 16 on, every single New Testament writer, every single author in the New Testament not only mentions the cross and the suffering of Jesus, they're raving about it, including Peter. Peter in his books can't get enough of the cross. He's glorying in it. He's reveling in it. The suffering of Jesus is the best news I've ever heard. So what in the world did Peter begin to understand from Matthew 16 where he's rebuking a Messiah that suffers to then go just a few years later when he's writing letters to the, church, to the early church saying, you're not going to believe how good this is. Jesus suffered. What did the disciples begin to realize about their suffering Messiah that totally transformed their view of his crucifixion? It's because the disciples began to understand that the cross wasn't merely something that was a, a display of an example of how to love. Like, here's what happens in the modern day. The cross becomes this thing in the modern mind. The cross is just this wonderful example of passivism. Like, look at how Jesus handled his accusers. Look at how silent he was. He didn't fight back, and he went and suffered, and he died, and we are to follow that example. Now, is there some truth in that? Sure. But here's what the, the disciples and the authors of the New Testament books, they're not raving about the cross as an example. They're not saying, this cross, you're not going to believe this cross, this suffering of our Messiah, because look at how much it inspires you to go, to go and do likewise. That's not what they're writing about. Here's what the New Testament writers understand. Here's why the New Testament writers can't stop talking about the cross of Jesus. It's because they realize that their divine Messiah Precisely because he was divine, when he suffered and died, something happened. Something shifted in the cosmos. And here's, the, here's not the only um, effect of the cross, but here's potentially, according to the New Testament, the primary effect of the cross of Christ. Christ suffered to give you a father. If you want to find out, according to J.I. Packer, if you want to find out how much someone understands Christianity, find out how much they rave about having God as their father. Because you do not get that anywhere else. Christ suffered to make you his own. Christ suffered to turn enemies into sons and daughters. Christ suffered to give you a father. Do you think the world is looking for a father Would you think it's possible that all of our living is a search to find a father? Even if you had a great dad, like I did. I had a great dad. Have a great dad. 
Is it possible that everything you do, you're on a quest to find a father? Is it possible that what's driving you in all of your efforts and all of your work, what's driving you in between your ears, what's driving you down in the deepest seat of your emotions is the quest, the search to find a father, a father that would love you, a father that would see you, a father that would know you, a father that wouldn't leave you. Is it possible, it's why Bruce Springsteen said in an interview several years ago that rock and roll is all about daddy. It's all one embarrassing scream of daddy trying to prove something to somebody in the most intense way possible that you were worth a little more attention than you got? Is it why we all weep during Lion King and Field of Dreams? Is it why clinical psychologist Margot Main 30 years ago invented the term father hunger to help diagnose the cause of eating disorders and addictions? That there's this father hunger in all of us. There's this craving, there's this longing for someone to see me, know me, love me, and not leave me. And that fathers have the ability to to fill that hunger in their kids. That fathers have the ability to not leave those scars and not leave their kids emotionally or physically. And that if our father hunger is not being met, we will go fill it because the father hunger doesn't go away. Is that possible? It's why the Coldplay song from their new record, Don't At Me, it's an amazing record. It's why the new Coldplay song, Daddy, is haunting, even if you have a great dad. It's a haunting song. Daddy, are you out there? Daddy, don't you care? It just, it, it, it's like you can't escape the whisper of, I want, I want that to be true for me. I want, my, I want a father. I need a father. I was made to find a father who would see me and be with me and not abandon me. Is it possible that all of our living is our search to find a father? Is it possible that that's why you have the job that you have because you have to prove your worth to somebody? Is it possible that's why you lose your temper on your kids because you're so afraid of inflicting the same father wounds that you have onto them? Is it why you have the demons that you have that scream at you that you're not enough and you'll never be enough? Are you looking for a father? And here's Jesus telling his disciples about his passion for people that they don't know, that I have a passion for people that you don't know, and I want them to know about me. And here's what I want them to know about me. I'm a suffering Messiah, and I'm going to suffer as their Messiah to turn them from enemies into sons and daughters to give them a father. I must go to Jerusalem to suffer And you don't have to understand all of the theological intricacies of how the Bible explains our spiritual adoption as sons and daughters, but that's the biblical presentation of the gospel. The suffering of Jesus answers all of your cries for a father. Watched the Kelly Clarkson YouTube clip this week. Not normal, but I found this clip, I was reading this book, and footnotes sent me to the, you know, the back of the book, and, it, and in the extended footnotes, it said, you have to go watch this clip, so I googled Kelly Clarkson, American Idol, piece by piece, it's amazing, <laughs> I shouldn't have done it, because I was a puddle the, the afterwards, she's singing this song about her anger towards her father, and her pain, and her wounds of her father, who abandoned her when she was six years old, 
But now those wounds are being healed by a man who does love her and does hear and isn't leaving her. And so she's saying, piece by piece, he restored my faith that a man can be kind and a father could stay. And she can't even get through the song. She's crying, but here's what begins to happen. She's literally crying out about father wounds that are now being healed, and everybody in the room is weeping. Like Keith Urban's crying, and if Keith's crying, I'm crying, right? (laughs) Keith, I know. Uh, but it, it's, it's, this, it's, this, it's this unbelievable moment where all she's doing is expressing her own father hunger, her own, her own pain and sadness from her father wounds, and guess what happens? No one can contain their own um, going to that same place. And this is what the gospel of a suffering Messiah does to us. Piece by piece, it heals us. Jesus' wounds have the power to heal the world, including you. Because here's what a suffering Messiah tells you. Your suffering Messiah has now not left you as an orphan, and he has brought you into the family, and you have a father. But it gets even better. Because here's what the gospel of a suffering Messiah ends up saying to you. That in your quest for a father, in your and my father hunger, where we will go looking and we will find our father, we will be worth something. We will go find someone who will tell us just how much we're worth. In our quest to find a father, here's what the gospel says. Your true father has come to find you first. You don't have to go looking for the father that you long for. He's already come looking for you. It's why the prodigal son story in Luke 15 is so magical and draws all of us in because there's a father at the end of it. Like if it was just friends welcoming the prodigal home, it'd be a great story. If there's a father welcoming the prodigal home, we're all in. James K. Smith says, every child looking for an absent, distant father is on the road to cover up a deeper desire that such a father would come looking for them. That the arrow of hunger would be reversed and the father would return. Because then we would know he was thinking about us, he was looking for us, and he was loving us. What to make of our father hunger other than a deep longing to be seen and known by the one who made us. That, that's what's beginning to happen in this passage. Peter's own father hunger journey is beginning to be transformed when he's refusing the suffering of the Messiah, but then just a few years later when he writes his epistles, he's raving about it. Because did you catch what Jesus said to Peter? When, when, when Peter makes the confession of the Christ and he says, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, and Jesus goes, ding, 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 you're right. He goes, and guess what, Peter? You didn't discover that on your own. But my Father showed it to you because my Father is your Father now. And here's why your Father showed that to you because he cares about you. He came looking for you, and how did he do that? Through me, Peter, <laughs> Your father came to find you, and I'm here to do the rescuing. I'm here to do the bringing you home. I'm here to to let you know you don't have to go looking for a father anymore. You already have one, and he came for you. Your father showed you this, Peter. You didn't discover this on your own, which is exactly what orphans are dying to believe. Do I have to discover all this on my own? Do I have to find my own way? Do I have to blaze my own trail and figure out this life? And that's that's what Jesus is saying to Peter. You have a father now. You didn't discover this on your own. Your father showed it to you because he cares about you. Does Jesus care about people that you don't know 
knowing who he is? Yes. How does he set forth the means by which that would happen? He sends his people. And what does Jesus want the world to know about him? That he suffered to turn enemies into sons and daughters. Let's pray. Jesus, there are father wounds um, in the room that are so deep that even the mention of God as father um, causes a trigger. That some of us don't even want you to be called father because of the association with that word. That fathers have done and have the ability to do so much damage to our hearts. And even the best of fathers, all that we truly experience with the best of fathers is looking through them to the real father who will never fail us. So in this time, as your people are gathered and hearing about your passion and compassion for the world, would you stir in us as your kids a deep, a deep connection with the father that we all long for? We ask all this in our suffering Jesus' name. Amen.